Hey, and welcome to Off the Sidelines, your guide to getting into early stage investment. The world needs a new generation of great companies, and we need your help. I'm your host, Chris Wink. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Technically. And hey there, it's Abby Lee Moscone. ALM. Hello, I am your DJ's favorite DJ. Wow. And a Technically contributor. Wow. I'm also co-host here on Office Sidelines, which is supported by Project Entrepreneur, a program by UBS. Abby, I gotta admit. What? Uh, we have someone on the show here that I am personally inspired by. Oh. It's this guy. So I'm Josh Koppelman. Right. So you've known Mr. Koppelman for some time. For a decade or so, actually. Hmm. Uh, yeah. So he's an impressive guy. He's a serial entrepreneur who started dabbling into angel investing before in 2003, mm-hmm. co-founding First Round Capital. That is a, a bi-coastal VC firm that has built a reputation for being really a part of a new generation of an approach to entrepreneurial engagement in their portfolios. Wow. They were early in Uber and LinkedIn and dozens of other impressive companies. Forbes routinely adds him to their annual Midas touch list of influential investors in the world. Wait, I've heard him joke that he's your former landlord. This is not even entirely a joke. <laughs> yes, this is an editorial disclosure. Technically spent three years as a tenant of First Round Capital. Oh. Uh, he had an office in West Philadelphia that, that for some time in University City we were too. Um, it was like always the most intimidating coffee breaks of my life. Oh, wait, there is one of the country's most influential investors. I just want cream. You must have avoided the bathroom at all costs. (laughs) Very intimidating bathroom (laughs) breaks. Um, Let's just say we had a strategy, Uh, but it was great if we needed him to get on the record because he he would have to hide from us. So there was very clear editorial lines. It was a beautiful, vibrant relationship. Unfortunately, uh, we now have deep distance and can just have compelling conversation and I got to say, when you're in a conversation with him, it's like he's a raptor trying to identify information. He is, he is, he's following up with questions. He's rapid fire. That's terrifying. It's terrifying, but, but really a wonderful exercise if you want to know if you know your stuff. And, mm-hmm. and like any great investor, he's, he's an entrepreneur at heart. Like any great entrepreneur, he has lots, uh, I might even say, an insatiable curiosity. And like a lot of investors, he must get a ton of inbound interest for advice. Indeed. So you, dear listener, we are saving you from having to be one of the thousands of people that that, uh, Josh gets inbound in his inbox for advice on getting into angel investing or VC. So I started by asking him for just that advice. What would he give to anyone starting down this angel investor asset class? Josh, thanks so much for having this conversation. Happy to be here. Um, let's say you're having lunch with that friend who says, I'm at a stage in my life where I want to add a new asset class. I'm interested in investing in early stage companies. I know I could do this lots of different ways. This is a friend of yours, so you're going to like give them some basics. What might your initial feedback be for someone who's beginning to look at this asset class? I'd really try to understand their, the why behind their thinking. There's a ton of things you could invest in. You could invest in commodities. You could invest in soybean futures. Um, why angel investing in startups? I think that um, from a purely economic reason, unless you have a unique point of view, unless you feel like you have an edge in an industry, an edge in terms of knowledge, an edge in terms of access to entrepreneurs, um, this is unlike public equities, where anyone can buy any stock. In this case, you know, most people can't buy stock. So you have to sort of sit down and say, 
if I'm being offered an opportunity to invest in a startup, why are they offering it to me? Is it because they think I'm the smartest person on the planet or I'm the dumbest person right. on the planet? <laughs> and unless you have sort of an edge where you believe that the reason they're offering it to you is you're an expert in that industry. The reason they're offering it to you is you have a 10 plus year relationship with the founder. The reason they're offering it to you is because you've studied that industry and gone deep and you called that founder and he or she was really interested. Like that might work, but, but, but in general, um, absent a strong reason to be the investor, I think there's probably more reasons not to be. Have you found any common characteristics of, of people who are better as, I just want to put my dollars as part of a, a small fund that's, 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 that's operating, or I want to be the actual one doing the deal or be part of an angel network? Are there commonalities you found? Yeah, I think a lot of it depends on what your goals are, right? Sort of. When I started angel investing before I started first round, so before I started my venture fund, I'd made over 40 angel investments, and a large part of them were for non-economic reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, I was investing with people I knew, and it was a way I could support uh, people I knew or liked. Um, I was I just sold a company, and I was trying to understand different industries, and I was viewing this as low-cost, low conviction tuition payments to learn. I was trying to decide whether I wanted to be a venture capitalist and would I like being an investor. Um, like there are plenty of non-economic reasons why this, um, why you might invest. Um, you know, but if you're going to do it purely for economic reasons, um, then you have to sit down and say again, okay, I have the opportunity to invest in some venture funds or I could invest directly. Do I think I will have better access or better selectivity or better ability to win than a VC? And if so, because you're an expert in certain areas, by all means do it. But if it's purely for economic reasons, um, you know, look, there's some people that buy and sell individual stocks, but the vast majority of them either go to mutual funds, exchange funds, or hedge funds to, to do the picking for them. And that is in an area where everyone could buy everything when 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 you 99% of the product you don't even know is out there right you don't you you're not most angels don't know 99% of the companies that are raising um it really causes question there's now so much information on online uh, podcasts blog you know videos all the conventional wisdom in the world you can access um i imagine it's still quite challenging because in the moment, sometimes we're choosing between different priorities and the conventional wisdom, we, we might run aground it. Do you have any stories that you might evoke, that might evoke maybe early on, something that you knew you shouldn't have done or you, you would have thought you ought not have done, but you still did for some reason and, and it's resonant with you about a lesson you learned? Angel investing? Yeah. Yeah, I'd say that like the, I lost my money in, the, in my first nine angel investments. Um, so I think the first thing is, um, and the reason why is because I was an operator before that. I'd started and exited several companies. And what I was doing when I was meeting with the entrepreneurs, like an entrepreneur comes in and tells you like the recipe they want to cook, right? Like, here's my vision. Here's what I want to cook. So they'll come in and say, I want to make chocolate cake. And what I would do is I would ignore the fact that they wanted to make chocolate cake and I would look at their ingredients. I would look at the chocolate, the flour, the sugar, the cream, and I would say, huh, if I were in the kitchen, I'd make brownies. Mm-hmm. And I, I pretty much would be, I found the first several checks that I wrote, 
I, I was focusing on the ingredients rather than the recipe, and I was focusing on what I would do rather than what the founder wanted to do. Um, and, and that's a bad, that's a recipe for a bad investment. Um, you know, the second lesson I think I learned is that this is a business where to some degree, as soon as you write a check, you should be willing to write it off. Um, because chances are actuarially, statistically, mathematically, it's closer to zero than it is to cost the minute you wrote it. It's kind of like buying a boat or a car. As soon as you (laughs) take it off the lot, the value has been cut meaningfully. Um, and, and as a result, I also don't think this is, again, if you're investing purely for economic reasons, I'd be skeptical that this is an asset class that you could do well in uh, if you were only writing a few checks a year. Could you finish the, the metaphor there of, of ingredients and recipe? Um, we so often talk about the chef also. I'm wondering, if was there is there some finishing to that metaphor of why? Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, you're betting on the you're betting on the chef. You're betting on them to 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 execute their recipe or to change their recipe. Because I guess my challenge is if you at first didn't like their recipe but liked their ingredients, but you thought the chef was real smart, would would the metaphor be, well, I think that chef might get to the right recipe? Yeah, but I've, I, that's, mm. I, that's where I've lost money. Okay. Um, and mainly because I don't think anyone likes the concept of starting a relationship, starting a partnership, like where I go to bed every night hoping that the founder changes their mind. <laughs> like it's a bad it's a bad recipe for success for me to sort of say, all right, I'll write them a check and boy, I sure hope they're smart enough to do something completely different. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it, it, it just is the wrong lens I find to sort of start a, a partnership. You should recognize that like you're getting in the car and they're driving the car. And if you don't want to go to the destination that they're, that, that they're initially taking you to it's 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 a it's a scary thing to sort of just get on the car and hope that they ultimately come around and take you to the right place anything from your journey about the types of questions you asked and how that's changed over time that you want to share with them are there approaches that that you've evolved maybe because of you or the type of investing you do or even just the culture around it uh, the well of we questions? do s- such early stage investing and that doesn't mean that's not the only type of angel investing but um, so, so I could, I could give some frameworks that we use for the earliest of stages, but it might be very different if an angel was looking to invest in a Series A, B, or C round. Um, you know, what we're typically assessing is the founder. I, I, I tend to believe that exceptional founders uh, are, are comfortable. They're nonconformists. Um, it's really hard to be a conformist and a successful founder. Mm. Um, society just has this conveyor belt of conformity that they put people on, right? You're going to go to high school and take the right tests and get the right, have the right extracurricular activities to get into the right college where you're going to get the right internships and do the right extracurriculars and do the right board scores to maybe go get a postgraduate degree where then you could get the right job. So then you could get the right mortgage and get there. Like, like there's a, a conveyor belt of conformity that we push people in. And the reason why is because on a societal level, it actually has the greatest impact of lifting up, uh, uh, you know, as many people as possible. But entrepreneurship is not conformity. Entrepreneurship is, is actually not just getting off the conveyor belt, but walking the other way. Right. So, um, you know, when you show up your first day of school, your teacher gives you a curriculum or a syllabus, and that tells you, here's what the readings are. You don't have to guess. 
Here's when they're due. You don't have to guess. Um, here's everything that the tests are going to be on. I'm even going to give you some study guides. And I'm even going to give you the cheat codes to the class by telling you that class participation is 20% and assessment, you know, take-home assessments are 30% and fine, you know. Like, you don't have to draw a map that, like, they give you a map. You need to be a great map follower. Um, and, and for most jobs and for most people, you have to be a great map follower. I'd say to be a great entrepreneur, no one tells you what to read. No one tells you what it's due. No one tells you what not to read. No one tells you what winning looks like. You have to figure all that out. And that's really, there's a ton of anxiety there, a ton of uncertainty and a ton of self-doubt. And, and so if, you've, if you're a 32-year-old and you've spent 31 year, years on the conveyor belt and this is your first time getting off, it's going to be really hard. So we just look for examples in founders past where they've gotten off the conveyor belt. Did they join a club at school or did they start a club in school? Do they read books and magazine articles or do they write books and magazine articles? Do they pick a major or do they create their own major? Do they pick a class or do they independent study? Like there's just so many examples and it doesn't have to be I started a company when I was 12 type of examples mm -hmm. that 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 could just show that this is someone who is okay building their own path. Low interest rates have been part of the reason of a whole slew of new dollars into early stage investing. It's mostly just gotten us a bigger, like pre-IPO sized companies still have declining rates of entrepreneurship and have had that for a generation or so. I just, I wonder if you were speaking to a conference of investors. Um, if you if you knew we feel as though we lack economic dynamism in part because of declining rates of entrepreneurship, is there any kind of rallying cry you would say to, to the investor class about if there's a responsibility to um, to be part of of that economic mix, or is that just out of focus for what investors should be thinking about? Yeah, I I, I think it's really hard as an individual investor to view yourself as sort of the agent of societal change. I actually do think that through subtle things societally, whether it's the fact that um, the products that millennials use are all created by entrepreneurs they could associate with. They all know who the founder of Facebook is. They all know who the founder of Snapchat is. They know those stories. Um, Shark Tank and the social network movie, I actually think you're seeing sort of a generational shift where people at least understand that entrepreneurship is a thing and is a career. I mean, I know when I look at Wharton this year, I think this is the first year in the history of Wharton where there are more members of the entrepreneurial club than the like an investment banking, finance, or consulting clubs. Mm. Um, so, like, so I, I do see enough promising signs that I'm not totally worried from a societal level. Mm-hmm. Um, do you worry about like this Shark Tank phenomenon? You know, is that worrying for you? That there's new dollars in, or is it just the uh, churn and burn, and we'll get new voices, and the best will, will rise? And yeah, look, I think it benefits the, the more the more investors there are, the more capital that's going into early stage companies. I can see it only helping entrepreneurship. Might not generate the returns that the investors want, but if more opportunities. Could, uh, if, 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 if there are more, more companies and ideas getting funded, more, more founders saying, here's my dream, and more investors saying, I'll write a check for that, I think that's a good thing societally. Uh, it's, it's hard to know whether that's the right asset, like that's the right, that'll generate the returns. 
assuming you get 1000 emails a day of someone saying, Hey, help me. How do I, how do I, you know, be a VC or how do I, I do what you did. And you wanted to, if you wanted to save some of those meetings by being able to point to something and you wanted this link to be the thing, is there something you so often say to those types of people that you would want to make sure is, is received? Yeah, I think that, I don't think that most successful VCs view themselves as stewards of capital. They don't see themselves as investors. They see themselves as participants in the entrepreneurial ecosystem. And so, so my sense is that um, the single best thing you could do is participate in the entrepreneurial ecosystem. Start a company. Join an early stage startup. Um, um, you know, but the best founders want to learn from the people want to work with investors who they feel could help them win. So, you know, so to some degree, I would, the only way that I think you could be a successful VC is if you have some ability, unique ability in a, in a super competitive space to help founders win. Last word, uh, bring us back to that friend that you had lunch with at the beginning of our conversation. Um, is there anything that you have found that friend is most likely to come back to you and ask about six months later, the first problem they have when they get into investing or the first ticket they get into? So I think oftentimes angel investors have unrealistic expectations of returns and liquidity. So say there's an angel investor who wants to invest $500,000 into 10 companies, 50,000 a pop, or even 20 companies, 25,000 a pop. They might say, great, if I'm doing 20 companies, I'll do seven a year for the next three years. Um, and then my returns will pay for it. And when you look at the liquidity time on most angel investments now, you're talking about 9, 10, 11 years. Um, and so um, all too often, I think what happens is angel investors say, okay, I know I need to build a diverse portfolio. I know I can't just do one or two investments a year. Um, so they start writing checks. They say this is fun. And then 18 to 24, maybe 36 months into it, they've you know, made their 20 investments. And they're kind of out of dry powder. They don't have any data yet to know. Right. And, may, and maybe you, know, you, you, know, you get false positives all the time. There are plenty of companies. Of your 20, there might be two or three that are doing exceptionally well. That doesn't mean that they're going to end up exceptionally well. It means that you know, in the marathon, they have a good time through like mile six. There's still plenty of miles where they could right. sprain their knee and, or twist their ankle and just not finish. Um, so I think that that's when they sort of come in and say, geez, okay, I spent through my budget. Do I double down with another 500 and another 500? Do I slow down? And, and that's where it gets hard. Yep. Josh, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Ah, that marathon metaphor is really great. Like the false positives that at any given time, a company can look strong, but still, I guess, sprain their ankle. Right. And you could get really excited. Um, Josh is like professionally in the game of investor metaphors anytime <laughs> I've ever interviewed him. I think or, you are too. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to follow or catch up, right? Uh, every time I've ever interviewed him or spoke to him, he, he's like trying out another one. He's, he's seeing if it, if it does the work. Um, <laughs> some are stronger than others, but yeah, I do, I do like the marathon one here. And, and it's a good reminder that that your companies in your portfolio or those you're following, they will have great days, they will have bad days, mm -hmm. they will have strings of successes, they will have rough 
periods of failure. So any given snapshot of time might not actually be a great predictor of, of future success. Chris, I also love that idea that as an investor, you need to understand why someone is pitching you. Like, is it because they think you're the smartest person in the room? Or is it because they think you're the dumbest? Right, because there are two big, broad buckets of relationships. You got the, the times when an investor is money plus wisdom, insight, network, brand, and other times when it's just the money. And, and in angel investing particularly, you have to be wary of this. You're just another person. Are you, are you a check or are you check plus something more? And um, the wisdom says that, that when you're just the check, it, it doesn't always work out as well. Well, how do you think you know if they think you're the dumb one? Yeah, I, <laughs> I suppose it's a question of if they aren't much interested in what you have to say. Um, but really, I think Josh's message is you have to understand yourself. Why am I the right person to be this check? And of, of course, if you're part of a round, there might be several of you. But ultimately, you want to understand, like any team that's being formed, why are we the pieces of the puzzle that will make this sing? Mm. All right. Well, with that, we got to go. That's this episode of Off the Sidelines, an investor education podcast. We hope you'll join us. If you have a question you want answered, tweet us at technically underscore LY or just go bother Chris. He's at Christopher Wink. Yeah. <laughs> Please bother him. Episodes are produced by John Myers with production support by Sam, waiting for Godot, Markowitz. Make sure to subscribe to Off the Sidelines on every single one of your podcast platforms of choice. Thanks to our partners and supporters at Project Entrepreneur for making this series possible. Project Entrepreneur is a program by UBS. Music in this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks for listening and please join us next time.